This is the History of the World podcast with me, Chris Hasler. And you're listening to Volume 3, The Classical World. Episode 30, The Battle of Zama. Zama is in the modern-day country of Tunisia, which is in the north of the continent of Africa, and therefore it would have very likely had a rich link to human history. Some of the earliest modern human beings would have been active in this area of the world as long ago as 200,000 years ago. When the people of these lands turned to an agricultural way of life, These people are generally called Berbers. The Berbers have inhabited the lands of what we refer to in the modern world as the Maghreb, roughly the northwestern coastal areas of the African continent. And they have done so far for all of history, although not exclusively. The Berbers of North Africa would have surely not have been completely isolated from the Fertile Crescent culturally during the traditional Bronze Age with evidence of an advanced Neolithic lifestyle. Certainly the Egyptians were aware of them as can be traced by their own hieroglyphic writings. To the east of the modern day country of Tunisia is Libya and so we have a connection to the ancient Libyans who can be identified as Berbers themselves and whose tribes would have included the Meshwesh, who became directly involved in Egyptian politics, as we discussed back in Volume 2, specifically during Episode 19. The Berbers to the west of the lands of the modern-day country of Tunisia would become specified as the Numidians, and this would refer to the modern-day lands of Algeria. The Levantine city-state of Tyre, in the modern-day country of Lebanon, colonised the North African coast and established the city of Carthage during the 9th century BCE. With the arrival of quite an advanced, affluent trading society in this area, there would have undoubtedly have been cultural influences from all sides on each other. Certainly, the religious practices of the city of Carthage demonstrate aspects of Phoenician practice and Berber practice. So even though we are very aware of Carthage's place in the story of the ancient history of North Africa, we can see that the indigenous people of the lands of the modern country of Tunisia were still highly influential over the culture of the area as a whole. The arrival of Carthage may have helped the Berber tribes recognise their common cultural identity more readily than beforehand, when it would have had no significance at all. So we can summarise the area around Zama as a land inhabited by agricultural Berbers living in small tribal societies that had come under the influence of the city of Carthage. 
most of the Berbers of North Africa would have remained independent from the Carthaginians, but the Berbers around the city of Zama would have been under the imperial influence of the Carthaginians. The Roman Republic The Roman Republic grew from its central settlement, the city of Rome. They quickly abolished their failing monarchical system in favour of a more democratic governance. This was possibly a good move because the city was able to expand its influence over its neighbours either by diplomatic or military means and this prompted a growth in its power and borders from the 4th century BCE onwards. Following a sacking of the city by the Gauls from the north in 390 BCE. This would also prompt the Romans to build substantial defensive structures around the city in place of the existing ones. It was as if the Romans were not prepared to accept their position and believed that the best way to prevent it happening again would be to expand and so that is exactly what they did. This leads us into the 3rd century BCE, where the subject of today's podcast episode effectively represents the climax of Western Mediterranean politics of the 3rd century BCE. So this particular century represents a hugely pivotal moment in the historical timeline of both the Romans and the Carthaginians. Firstly, the king of the Epirates named Pyrrhus crossed the Ionian Sea and created battle with both the Romans on the Italian peninsula and the Carthaginians on the island of Sicily. Both Rome and Carthage would be successful in driving Pyrrhus away from the modern Italian lands. The Romans in particular would then expand their influence southwards over the Greek colonies in the far south of the Italian peninsula in order to prevent any further collaboration with overseas nations which had allowed Pyrrhus to establish a power base in the south of the Italian peninsula in the first place. However, both Rome and Carthage were by now the most extensive empires of the western Mediterranean and both would have had a vested interest in having a degree of freedom when it came to the important waterway called the Strait of Messina which separated the island of Sicily from the Italian peninsula and gave any seafarers a direct route from the waters of the Tyrrhenian Sea to the waters of the Ionian Sea. It is very likely that Rome would have not wanted to have been constrained by the Carthaginians having control of this waterway, so the Romans would step in themselves and the Carthaginians were forced to back off. This escalated into a Sicilian conflict called the First Punic War in which the Romans battled to subdue Carthaginian power in Sicily in order to bolster their own sphere of influence. After over 20 years of conflict, the Romans were successful in expelling the Carthaginians from the island of Sicily and the Carthaginians were so weakened by what had happened that they were unable to prevent the Romans from taking influence of the large islands of Corsica and Sardinia in the process. 
The Romans also consolidated their position in the north of the peninsula by challenging the troublesome Celtic tribes, often collectively called the Chisalpine Gauls, and turning this into a Roman province centred on the city of Mediolanum, which is the modern city of Milan. By this time, the Carthaginians of the Iberian Peninsula, under the command of Hannibal Barca, were preparing to invade from the north after crossing the mountainous land route between the two peninsulas. Hannibal's invasion was shockingly successful as the Romans found themselves being defeated on all occasions that they dispatched an army to head Hannibal off, with the worst defeat taking place at the Battle of Cannae in 216 BCE, which saw a Roman army of over 80,000 individuals massacred following some tactical genius from Hannibal. The Romans had to raise many legions in order to try to deal with Hannibal, who by now had taken control of a large area of land in the central to southern portion of the Italian peninsula, and so by 212 BCE, the Romans were in a strong position to take the war back to Hannibal. One of the first things that the Romans would do is prevent the Macedonians at the north of the Balkan peninsula having any say in the support of Hannibal by going to war with them under their leader King Philip V, which was justified by Macedonian attacks on Illyrian lands held by Rome. At the same time, Rome would be campaigning in the Carthaginian-held lands in the Iberian Peninsula too. The Scipio brothers successfully took the Iberian city of Saguntum before they were both killed at the Battle of Apabetis. This would bring one of their sons, Publius Cornelius Scipio, to the command of the Roman forces in Iberia, where he would take revenge for the death of his father and uncle by taking Carthago Nova and finally defeating the Carthaginians of Iberia at the Battle of Ilipa. Carthage The Carthaginian Empire began from the North African city of Carthage in the 9th century BCE, which went on to grow very prosperous due to its strong command of naval sea routes providing valuable links to and for the merchants of Greece, Rome and the Levant, among others. Initially, Carthage and Rome enjoyed a good diplomatic relationship from either side of the vast expanses of the Mediterranean waters that separated them. Carthaginian wealth was enabling it to create a large area of influence throughout the western Mediterranean. However, the city of Carthage faced out into the Mediterranean Sea over a section called the Sea of Sicily, which is a comparatively narrow waterway which you are somewhat obliged to use to pass from the eastern Mediterranean to the western Mediterranean, and therefore was of vital importance to the Carthaginians. So they would colonise the land on the other side of this waterway, on the island of Sicily. This would unnerve the Greek colony of Syracuse, which was already established on the other side of the island, and tensions between Carthage and Syracuse would escalate. This would lead to the seesaw battles called the Sicilian Wars, which would be ongoing for many, many generations. Neither side would be able to push the other off the island. Tensions would remain in place 
right up until the beginning of the 3rd century BCE when King Pyrrhus of Epirus invaded the Italian peninsula and battled with Rome before actually turning his attention to Sicily and doing battle with the Carthaginians. Carthage would just about survive the attack of King Pyrrhus before he left and retreated back to the Balkan peninsula again. As we already know, once Rome had expelled King Pyrrhus, they pledged to help a Sicilian city, which was too much for Carthage to allow, and this exploded into the long drawn out and bitter First Punic War, which Carthage, being the dominant force of the seas, may have been surprised to discover the Romans fancied their chances in. Over 20 years of conflict took place before Carthage was removed from their Sicilian holdings after many centuries and forced to return to North Africa where a Carthaginian general called Hamilcar Barca began drawing up a plan to revive Carthaginian fortunes by extending their imperial reach into the lands of the modern country of Spain in the Iberian Peninsula. After notable success in Iberia, Hamilcar Barca was killed in a battle against the native Celt-Iberians at Oritani. However, Hamilcar Barca had a number of sons and sons-in-law who would continue the Barsid line of the Carthaginian generals. Firstly would be his son-in-law, Hasdrubal the Fair, who would reach an agreement with the Romans that Carthaginians would not venture north of the Ebro River. However, when the city of Saguntum, south of the Ebro River, created an alliance with Rome, Hasdrubal the Fair's successor, Hannibal Barca, besieged the city. Hannibal Barca We have already learned much about Hannibal Barca during this podcast series, son of Hamilcar Barca, and born in or around the city of Carthage during the First Punic War. He would accompany his father to the Iberian Peninsula in the aftermath, where we have established that he would take command of the Carthaginian army there some years after his father's death. The name Hannibal directly references the Levantine god, Baal, who can be traced back many centuries and is something that we spoke about way back in episode 10 of volume 2, where we explored Phoenicia's early religion. Hannibal deemed the Roman interference in the politics of the southern Iberian city of Saguntum as unacceptable and besieged the city. He knew that this would incite the Romans and so he quickly realised that he would have no choice but to take on the Romans. But he could not afford to sit and wait for their invasion so Hannibal decided to take the fight to them. He would amass a huge army with which he could march across European lands to the territory of the Roman Republic itself. He would cross the Pyrenees Mountains and then famously the Alps. When Hannibal arrived at the Italian peninsula, he would score some incredible victories against the Romans at the River Trebia, Lake Trasimene and Cannae. The latter of which saw the Roman army of over 80,000 sensationally massacred thanks to Hannibal's sharp military mind. In the aftermath of Cannae, Hannibal set about creating a power base by which he could potentially debilitate the Roman Republic 
by encouraging cities to defect to the Carthaginian cause. However, the Romans struck back by successfully besieging Capua, which was a huge blow to Hannibal's ambitions. Scipio Africanus Publius Cornelius Scipio, who in modern Western academic circles is called Scipio, was a Roman born sometime after the conclusion of the First Punic War. His parents were both related to senatorial individuals, his father from a patrician line and his mother from a plebeian line. The Second Punic War broke out during a time when Scipio's father, also called Publius Cornelius Scipio, was one of the consuls of Rome. Scipio's father had already met Hannibal on the battlefield briefly when Hannibal first arrived from the Alps. Scipio's father was wounded, allowing Hannibal a gateway to do further damage to the Roman armies at later meetings. Scipio himself is said to have rescued his father during this disastrous early exchange. Scipio is believed to have been present at the Battle of Cannae, the absolute massacre of the Roman army. He must have been able to escape if he was there, so he was one of the fortunate ones. The fact that Scipio had seen so much happen against his own Roman Republic may have made him loyally fearless in terms of facing the Carthaginians. But in 211 BCE, when the Carthaginians killed his father and his uncle in battle, Scipio was keen to be at the forefront of the campaigns against the Carthaginians. He was only a young man, maybe in his mid-twenties, but he had already experienced enough to sow the seeds of a similar deep-rooted hatred of the Carthaginians that Hannibal had for the Romans. Scipio would be allowed to travel to Iberia to try to avenge the deaths of his father and uncle directly and he would be able to gather quick success by taking the city of Carthago Novo which would have been a devastating loss for Carthage. Scipio would also defeat Hannibal's brother Hastrobal Barca before Hastrobal would embark on his ill-fated crossing of the Alps in order to take vital supplies to his brother. Scipio did not pursue Hastrobal, instead choosing to remain in Iberia and gain more of an imperial foothold on the peninsula. It was a very good choice because thanks to Scipio's diplomatic skills coupled with his military leadership capabilities, Scipio was able to defeat the remaining Carthaginian commanders at the Battle of Elipa in 206 BCE, which forced the Carthaginians to abandon all of their Iberian possessions and return back to the African side of the Mediterranean Sea. This alone was not enough for Scipio. Scipio wanted more. He wanted to chase the Carthaginians back to North Africa and make them pay once and for all. The Roman Senate was reluctant to support this move as they had Hannibal under their watchful eye struggling to find the resources to be able to conduct a meaningful assault. So Scipio decided to go to Sicily 
where many survivors of previous Roman campaigns were garrisoned, many of which would have hungered for some kind of revenge against the Carthaginians. There, Scipio would train the military force for the invasion of North Africa that Scipio still desired. While the Roman Senate did not support an official invasion of North Africa, he allowed Scipio to travel across to North Africa with his army. Scipio did this in 204 BCE and Scipio started causing chaos. In North Africa, there were the Carthaginians based in the city of Carthage and there were the Numidians. Of the Numidians, there were those who were loyal to Carthage and there were those who were opposed to Carthage. Scipio would depose the king of the pro-Carthage Numidians and allow the anti-Carthaginian Numidian king called Masinissa to become the first king of a united Numidian kingdom. All of this would prompt Carthage to recall Hannibal to North Africa and so Hannibal would have to abandon his Italian possessions and head home to Carthage. Prelude to the Battle Scipio would have had the Roman massacre at Cannae and the death of his father and uncle on his mind when in North Africa. In 202 BCE, the Battle of Cannae was now 14 years in the past. So this moment was a long time coming. Many members of Scipio's army would have also had bitter memories of Cannae and would have relished the potential taste of sweet revenge. As mentioned before in the lead up to the fateful battle, Scipio would have also have had to have considered King Syphax of the western Numidian tribe of the Masisali, an ally of the Carthaginians. He would deal with the Syphax by befriending his eastern Numidian rival, King Masinissa of the Masili tribe. Masinissa would defeat Syphax in battle and unite Numidia, taking an important Carthaginian ally off of the game board. The arrival home of Hannibal would have lifted the hopes of the Carthaginians who had experienced nothing but bad fortune in the last few years. If anyone was going to turn their fortunes around, it would be Hannibal. Hannibal would arrive back in North Africa and begin to assemble an army once more. Like Scipio, Hannibal would bring his wily veterans from the days of Cannae across the Mediterranean Sea with him. He would also assemble a force of 80 war elephants, which is more than the Romans had ever faced. The Carthaginian army would also contain conscribed citizens of Carthage to support the veterans. Some would be carrying the Sarissa spear which would have been similar to the ones used by the phalanx hoplites of Alexander the Great in the previous centuries Macedonian campaigns in Persia. Other members of the army were armed with the Falcata which is a heavy sword believed to have been originally created by the people of Iberia and it would have been loved by Hannibal, not least of all because it was rumoured to be strong enough to cut through a Roman shield. 
Hannibal would put his cavalry on the flanks, but this time Scipio would ensure that the Roman cavalry was not outnumbered as they were at Cannae. Once again, Scipio would have his veteran soldiers trained in Sicily who would have likely remembered the embarrassing and deadly defeat at Cannae. Scipio would also have mercenary infantry but would take advantage of the Numidian influence by utilising their cavalry alongside his own. Scipio would be all too aware that when Hannibal scored that unlikely victory at Cannae that the strength in numbers of the Carthaginian cavalry would have been a key factor in eliminating the Roman cavalry and providing a route behind the enemy to enable them to be encircled. Also, Scipio had spent a lot of time personally training his army in Sicily before travelling to North Africa, while Hannibal is likely to have had to have hastily put together a similar sized force. The Battle of Zama For Hannibal, much of his success was thanks to the choice of when to utilise his best assets. This time, he decided that the tactical use of the 80 war elephants would be vital. War elephants have been described as the ancient era's war tank. Designed to thunder into enemy lines, causing mass destruction of the ranks. So Hannibal believed that it would disrupt the discipline of the Romans by sending the elephants charging into their lines. The main issue with elephants is that they are not cold and mindless tanks. They are animals capable of being emotionally affected. Scipio introduced a class of soldiers called the Velites, who primarily were the frontline mercenaries armed with wooden darts. When the elephants advanced, the Velites would allow the elephants to get among their ranks by allowing them to come through their lines. Once inside the lines, they would attack the elephants. Some of the elephants would be freaked out and even stampede back into the Carthaginian infantry. Other elephants would simply be eliminated while being surrounded by mercenary velities. This was the opening exchange, but all too often in these exchanges, the deployment of the cavalry would prove to be a highly important factor. Whether or not Hannibal planned to utilise his cavalry as a key part of getting the upper hand in the battle, or whether he pinned his hope on his war elephants causing enough disarray to exploit, Scipio would not wait to find out. With the charge of the elephants absorbed, Scipio released his cavalry under the command of King Massinissa of the Numidians on the right-hand flank. And Scipio's long-time trusted military ally, Gaius Lelius, commanding the Roman cavalry on the left-hand flank. Scipio had got it right. He had dealt with Hannibal's initial elephant charge and then deployed his cavalry at just the right moment in order to prevent a repeat of Cannae where Hannibal effectively won the battle using his cavalry to open the door to victory. The Carthaginian cavalry was no match for the numerous 
well organised and capably commanded cavalry, and Scipio found himself in control of the battle following these two early phases. The battle was still far from over though, with both sets of infantry still to engage. Both sets of infantry, the Romans and the Carthaginians, had put their experienced infantry behind the front lines. The mercenary velities of the Roman front line initially engaged with the Carthaginian front line mercenaries. It would be the Sicilian trained Roman veterans who would start getting the upper hand and this caused Hannibal to elongate his formation in a bid to emulate the earliest exchanges at Cannae where Hannibal attempted to surround the enemy front line. Scipio anticipated this move and matched it by elongating his own front line and preventing Hannibal from gaining that same advantage. Basically, every tactical move that Hannibal attempted was matched or nullified by Scipio. It would be a matter of time before the Roman and Numidian cavalry would return from their successful pursuits and exchanges with the Carthaginian cavalry and this would be the decisive moment. There was absolutely no way that the Carthaginian infantry would be able to continue the battle with the Roman infantry and defend themselves against the Roman and Numidian cavalry who were now attacking them from the rear. The Carthaginians were thrown into a disorganised mess and now the Romans were able to take revenge for the massacre at Cannae 14 years ago. As Carthaginians were being slaughtered on the battlefield, Hannibal realised that the day was lost and made the tough decision to flee the battlefield. He knew that he would need to go to Carthage and advise them to surrender. Roman historians suggest that more than 20,000 Carthaginians were slaughtered on the battlefield. Aftermath The Second Punic War was now over. After almost 20 years of tension and battles, once again, as was the case with the long drawn out First Punic War, the Carthaginians had not only been defeated, but had been left so financially debilitated that a recovery would be unlikely for at least a generation. However, the Romans would not make the same mistake this time that they did the last time. This time, they would not give the Carthaginians any kind of ability to create any kind of imperial power base. They would be regulated by the new Roman ally in North Africa, the Numidians, and they would be tied into a diplomatic subservience to Rome for the next 50 years. With repatriation costs and no permission to create any kind of military foundation. It was the end of Carthage as an international power and the Romans would come back just over 50 years later 
after Carthage raised an army against Numidia. The Romans would totally destroy the city of Carthage and the city would be history. This was the conclusion of the Third Punic War and described in detail at the conclusion of episode 28. If you want to find out what happened to the two great commanders Scipio and Hannibal then this is also explained at the end of the 28th episode. Both Scipio and Hannibal at the conclusion of the Second Punic War could be described as their nation's most celebrated commanders to date with legendary status. The irony would be that both men would end their lives in sad circumstances some years later with Scipio becoming subject to intense speculation in Rome for financial irregularities. He would die in exile and as a bitter man, feeling disparaged by the country that he had brought great and glorious victory to. Hannibal would spend life looking over his shoulder knowing that the Romans wouldn't rest until he was dead and that his allies would potentially shop him to the Romans for some form of reward. Hannibal may have resorted to suicide as a means to prevent Rome the glory of parading him, their bitter enemy. Next time, we're going to look at the fascinating years and characters who contributed to the dramatic events that led to the famous imperialism of Rome as we explore the later years of the Republic. Well, that sort of closes the door, really, on that chapter of Roman history, the Punic Wars, and now Carthage is just a memory, and we move forward. But thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. It's been a huge pleasure to write about it, and I hope you enjoyed it half as much as I enjoyed writing it. Now, let's move on. Who has joined the History of the World podcast Illuminati this week. Well, joining the Illuminati, we've got Jaron Feenan, we've got Daniel S, we've got Ben Hoos, and um, we've also got. Um, oh no, that's it. I think we've done them all. I think that's it. Well, uh, thank you to everyone uh, who has joined the History of the World podcast Illuminati. These are the people that have made contributions towards the upkeep of the podcast. And if you want to join the History of the World podcast Illuminati and be entitled to all the wonderful rewards that comes with it, then just simply jog along to the History of the World podcast.com website, click on the Patreon link, and then sign up to make a monthly donation for as little as $1 per month. And those people who donate $1 a month, I still give them the rewards that they would have got if they'd have contributed more. So I know Patreon um, is an engine that rewards people for uh, the, the amount of their monthly contribution. Well, I do it a little bit differently. So if you donate $1 a month, you'll get the $10 reward after 10 months. So... 
I'm, uh, you know, I'm trying to look after you because you're looking after me. So go along there, make a little donation. But if you can't afford to make a donation, it's not um, easy at the moment. As um, as I say every week, it's um, you know it's tough uh, for many people to make any kind of financial commitment, especially with everything that's gone on this year. Then you can still aid the podcast by rating and reviewing us wherever you listen to us. And by doing that, you expose the podcast to more people. You move it up the charts in the chosen podcast platform and more people get the opportunity to stumble across the podcast while looking for material. So if you can't make a financial contribution, rating and reviewing just as valuable. Okay, as ever, we tried to wrap up with some uh, reviews and some emails. Um, let me read a review first. We've got uh, one from Canalaco uh, uh, from the USA, who's put quarantine salvation. This is just what the doctor ordered. My son has world history this in high school, so I thought I would find something to brush up on something I studied 35 years ago. Well, this podcast is so much more than an overview. It is an easy to digest, sometimes in-depth look at world history. I laughed out loud when Chris says in his non-expert opinion. I listen when I go for my daily eight-mile walk to get out of the house lockdown here in Orlando. If I ever met Chris, well, I don't often walk around Orlando, I must, I must admit, if I ever met Chris, I'm not sure I would recognise his voice because I listened to him at 1.5 times speed. Um, you're not the first. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you. I'm just finishing up Ancient Greece and I fear the day where uh, when I will have to wait a week between shows. I listen to three or four a day, Tim Lambert. Uh, thanks, Tim. Um, yeah, I'm sorry. Probably doing more than one a week. Oh, dearie me, don't think. I think that's possible, but um, once a week is enough for me. Should be enough for anyone, shouldn't it? Really, but uh, nonetheless, uh, let's uh, move on with some more emails. We've got plenty of emails this week. Plenty, plenty. We've got one from Eliza Irwin. Who's put hello? I just discovered your podcast and have listened through volume one straight without stopping. It's a wonderful show and I wanted to say, I hope you slept. Goodness me, I'm like having 24 episodes, 12, 13, 14 hours solid listening. Goodness me. Um, it's a wonderful show and I wanted to say thanks for making it. I'm listening in from Switzerland. Fantastic. Where I'm a social science researcher interested in contemporary non-state peoples. I'm thus incredibly eager to hear about the opposite, the early states of Mesopotamia, and what made people lay down foraging and settle for city life. I think sometimes we, we love to pigeonhole people, don't we? And like say, oh, he belongs to that state and he belongs to that state. I mean, there were probably many, many more stateless people in the past and people who were ostracised just simply for just having the wrong look on their face, I suppose. But um, yeah, I would imagine it was a harsh world to live in back then, but it's... You know, equally, it's a hard, it's a harsh world for some people to live in at the moment, especially if you've if you've got no state. Um, moving on, thanks for the message, Eliza. Thank you. 
Um, moving on, we've got David Turner, who's put, um, what a brilliant podcast. I'm a newbie to podcasts. Um, I've just finished listening to Volume 1, Episode 19, and I'm enthralled. By coincidence, my brother gave me this magazine yesterday, which dovetails with what I've learned so far. What, what magazine is that? Let's have a look. Oh, there's a picture here. Oh, it's Scientific American. The story of us is stranger than anyone thought. Inside, how climate shaped evolution. Did we mate with Neanderthals? Well, I, I didn't. Don't look at me. Why humans must stay alive. Um, why humans must stay alive? I'm not very good at reading this. Why humans must stay active to be healthy. When we survived a near extinction and the origins of language and culture. Yeah, that does sound like a few of the subjects that I've uh, stumbled across um, in my attempts to build a podcast about our history. Uh, thank you, David, in Chelmsford, Essex. Oh, that's just down the road for me. Just down the road, Chelmsford. The, Chelmsford, the town where the wonderful Rex Factor podcast is made. Uh, Amy has written in, uh, but hi Chris, I just discovered your podcast today and I'm really enjoying it a lot. Like you, I got my interest in history later in life, so I'm just beginning my journey into the world history. I really like this chronological order and found it very helpful and well done. Just a note to say thank you for doing this. The information is well organised and simple for my brain to chew and swallow. Well done and I look forward to getting to episode two. Uh, thank you, Amy. Episode two, do you mean volume two? Um, not sure, not sure. But uh, thanks for the message, Amy. Dina has written in and said, I just wanted to drop a thank you. You're really, uh, you're doing really, really awesome work that deserves a wider audience. Since running across one of your lectures on the Study of Antiquity channel, um, oh yes, the Study of Antiquity in the Middle Ages YouTube channel uh, by Nick Barksdale is, um, regularly uh, creating videos for my podcast material. He does a cracking job of it. Uh, anyway, I digress from the email written. Um, this is what Dina says. I've been telling everyone who shows even a vague interest in history about your website and podcast. Uh, the way we usually study history in the West creates the most misguided belief that important figures drive events when... More often than not, they simply represent the most visible reactors to a much broader context that's hard to grasp when only looking at the outliers. Like trying to figure out what a beach looks like based on the things that get trapped in a sieve. That's a brilliant analogy, thank you. Um, you're putting together something that has a breadth, depth, accessibility and inclusiveness that makes the History of the World podcast invaluable and unique. That's a very, very warm email, Dina. Thank you so much for being so articulate and uh, eloquent with your words, uh, with your complimentary words. Thank you. Leola has put, Hi, I love your video histories and have been trying to vo watch Volume 1 Prehistory and it won't allow me access. Please let me know how I can watch them as I'm primarily interested in prehistory. Thank you, Leola. Well, unfortunately, um, there is only a couple of uh, videos representing Volume 1, and I think it's, it's the latest stuff, like um, Neolithic Mesopotamia and, and that kind of thing. Um, so, like, and more of the videos are referencing Volume 2 material, but, um, of course, um, 
all uh, all the episodes. I think um, this is the 110th episode of the History of the World podcast. Are available on many of the different podcast platforms. Uh, Martin Lewis um, has put um, that uh, the download pages, the download links aren't working uh, anymore. Yes, that's because we've swapped podcast platforms, uh, the hosting platform, I should say, uh, from Audio Boom to Anchor, and that just basically means that all of the uh, old audio boom links are now um, obsolete so they've had to be replaced and hopefully I've tidied up the website to reflect that um, I think uh, you know we're getting a much better deal with Anchor um, to be quite frank about it and um, the the podcast has not been um, too directly affected in terms of its uh, distribution um, most people would have seen no difference at all so Anyway, that's it for the emails and reviews. Next week is going to be a very, very important week because we're going to be venturing into uh, the later years of the Roman Republic. So we're going to be talking about some uh, many, many different characters and also leading into the life of Julius Caesar, which is um, a very iconic part of Roman history. So uh, next week is uh, certainly not to be missed if you like the uh, the timeline of Roman history, um, you dare not miss next week's episode. Well, look, thank you, everyone, for listening. I'm going to wrap up now. And uh, we'll look forward to linking up again in seven days for some more History of the World podcast. And until then, make sure that you be good. Do you want more from the History of the World podcast? Then visit our website, historyoftheworldpodcast.com You can join our discussion forum and find us on social media. Support the podcast for as little as $1 per month by clicking the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com The best ones will be read out. Be sure to rate and review the show wherever you listen to us.